Is It Cake? Sobek 2 player and Richard Simpson from We're Not Wizards. This is Staying In. Let me ask you the question. Right. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Because all components are exactly the same as a sandwich. Can it be eaten with one hand? Yes. Is it something in between two slices of bread? Mm, I mean, it's not... Or bread that has been sliced? Yes. Then it's a sandwich. Next question, move on. Is it though? Of course it is. Well, no, no, you can't just say move on because you're not the determiner of all facts. I really can. You can. I mean, you're editing this episode, aren't you, Sam? Yes. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Next item. He's just going to cut he's going to cut and loop that those two words that he says at different instances. A, a hot dog's an awkward sandwich I think you would an say. An awkward sandwich. It's an awkward sandwich. In fact, okay, so here's the thing, right? If you eat a sausage sandwich, right? Or a sausage on a yep. roll, you'd probably cut yep. that sausage in half. Because traditionally I would say a sandwich is a flat thing and it's only because of places like um you know, certain sandwich sort shops, which I'm not going to mention because there's so many that are available, that for some <laughs> reason we we now think that sandwiches should be three and a half feet high. Whereas traditionally, if I, if I made yep. somebody a sausage sandwich, I would literally I would literally take that sausage and I would cut it lengthways in half and then fold it open, put it on the sandwich that way. Whereas a hot dog, I guess I'm not going to put anything else on except maybe the hot dog. I'm likely potentially not to butter it put any the only garnish I'd be putting would be tomato sauce maybe some onions it's an awkward sandwich at the very best and and I would say if it's awkward then by definition it's not a sandwich because the whole idea of a sandwich exactly. you cannot play games of it a minute ago you said it was a sandwich because you could eat it with one hand and you, it's between a sliced piece of bread yeah but what you can do and reality are two different things now <laughs> um, because one the best hot dog I've ever had was one that Chris and I we didn't share it, but we no, shared the not Lady in the Tramp. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was when we when we had curry versed in Frankfurt. Oh my word! And that was incredible. And I would say that's definitely not a sandwich because we needed to sit down and like have cutlery to, to fully appreciate the curry versed. So laden and heavenly decorated it was with fried onions and different various curried sauces. I mean, it's an event convenience mm. food, a hot dog. It's an event. It's an, ev- <laughs> it's an, event, an event convenience food. I think, so. I think that's <laughs> what it comes down to. <laughs> Has anyone seen the Is This Cake thing on Netflix? Yes. The title is, Is It Cake? Is It Cake? And you actually need to pronounce it like that um, anywhere you go. But they literally have, the idea is they've got like these wonderful patisserie kind of sweet sugar craft kind of chefs. And there's Mm. two teams. There's like the professional sugar craft artist chefs and then there's the guests and the guests are a mixture between celebrities. And the idea is that they will make certain household looking objects and you have to guess which one is real and out of the four or five no. that they have, which one is cake? And it was a phenomena no. that kind of appeared on 
during the I think during the original days of lockdown where people were putting up kind of videos and TikToks about it and they've turned it into a Netflix show. Yeah. No. How long's an episode? Uh, it's, it's like it's like a game show. It's like half an hour long. Half. Yeah. Um, an hour. Yeah, but what's actually yeah. impressive about it is like the skill that goes into it is incredible. Like there are times where they will say in one episode, there's like, okay, you have to, you're making a, a trainer. You have to make a trainer, a shoe. I thought you said train then. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> well, you, have to, yeah. you have to make a, a shoe. And then what they do is they get like six plinths, put shoes on each of them. And then the judges yeah. who stand a little way back, they stand behind a line. They can't go right up close. They have to guess which of the six shoes is cake. The best bit is the presenter then gets a random cutting device, such as a samurai sword, <laughs> and then tries to cut the things and says, is it cake? And then tries to cut it. And then, no, that's not cake. Is this cake? No. Is this cake? Yes. It's utterly stupid. But the skill yes. that goes into it is incredible, yes. where you are looking at it thinking, I genuinely don't know which of those two things is cake or is a real thing? It's worth watching. It's kind of cheesy. It's kind of silly. Mm, uh, cheesecake. It's yeah. It's cheesecake. <laughs> it's cheese. It's the cheesecake in Netflix. It's the cheesecake section in Netflix. It's utterly, utterly ridiculous. Utterly harmless as well. Yes. Utterly harmless. No message. No big thoughts. Cake. I mean, I've obviously not watched this show, so it's not really fair for me to say what I'm about to say. But <laughs> a few weeks ago, I talked about a series on the podcast called Arcade 81, which I really, really enjoyed. And Netflix have announced that they're not continuing that for season two, even though it did really, really well. Mm. So I'm, I'm glad to see that mm. the investment's going somewhere. Was that yeah. the time traveling? That was the time traveling one where they, they ended the series on a cliffhanger. There was, there is an element of time travel in. Uh, archive eight one mainly because it it, it it crosses different timelines as a yes. not so much time like time periods so it jumps them backwards and forwards there's no actual time travel they decided not to continue with it because that's a bit annoying because it was kind of like they were leading off into the second series was like this yeah, yeah, fascinating yeah. other thing other place of where it was going i was like oh i'm yeah. interested to see what they do with this uh, but is it cake but uh, who knows I just read this the other day. It's fascinating that somebody says that a hot dog is always a hot dog because technically a hot dog is always like basically minced up meat in in some kind of pig's intestine. When it enters your body, it actually just becomes minced up meat inside an intestine, which means it's still a hot dog, <laughs> technically. <laughs> which is also like goes along the same thing as a lasagna. You can never actually... What? When you have a lasagna, if you add any more lasagna yeah. to it, it's still a lasagna. If you stack it up <laughs> layer on top of layer. It's still a lasagna. There's no kind of thing, there's no acceptable level of lasagna layers where somebody says, you've got a yeah. lasagna and a half. Yeah. It's still technically a lasagna. You can have Viennetta for pudding. <laughs> exactly. But but there is a point though right. where mincemeat, bechamel, pasta, uh, mincemeat, bechamel, pasta yeah. goes from being those separate things to being lasagna. Surely there, the, a lasagna has to be a certain amount of layers until it's just pasta with mincemeat and some know. loose special I, I, sauce. I think you need, I think, um, just a minimum of two layers. You need to have a repetition. You need to have kind of meat on top of pasta on top of meat kind of thing. At that yes. point, it becomes yeah. lasagna. 
otherwise it's a beef pizza with a pasta base. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just it's just posh bolognese that somebody spilt white what's white sauce on. Really, I mean, when, that's what... to be fair, Chris, when you describe it like that, it sounds pretty nice. The the virus has struck nearly all of us on the podcast actually over the last few weeks, which has been good fun, good fun. So, you know, I'm still testing positive now. Still waiting for my double yeah. negative. Yeah, really. And whether because of vaccines or or just general luck, I don't think it's hit any of us particularly too hard. No. But although when you and I hung out last week to play Far Cry Six, you did sound like an accordion. So. <laughs> oh, thanks. I can't can't think of a worse insult for somebody. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But one thing I found that was quite interesting was that, and obviously I'm not trying to kind of play down the effects of the virus. And as you say, Sam, like we got off, I feel like, you know, I've got off extremely lightly with this. Um, Proof again how amazing the vaccines are. But like, um, it did make me think that actually in that, that point when you're ill, there are only certain things one wants to do, whether it's to be play games or to watch certain things that you, you, you're kind of well enough to really appreciate. And I found that quite an interesting thing yeah. that like I've been playing games with my partner. Obviously, we play games together in mm. person. And it was really interesting kind of thinking about the kinds of games that can kind of, in my case, suit a very short attention span and mm-hmm. aren't necessarily energetic or requiring me to speak for huge amounts if you see what I mean and it was a really interesting kind of uh parameter set of parameter parameters really to kind of think about how I choose what I do really or what I play um so that 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 was really quite nice because the mental energy as well like you know only today did I boot up Elden Ring again after a week because I was just like I just can't just I know I'm not going to enjoy enjoy this and horizon's aim just because i kind of like looking at a screen and trying to take that all in just just kind of like filled me with with dread so we've been playing two player games yeah. has just been kind mm. of like a bit of a bit of my focus just generally because like setting them up is really easy we have quite a big collection of them and it's meant that because both myself and my wife have had it still have the Rona, it's been, you know, easy for us just to get like a pile of two players out. We've literally had them on the kitchen side and we've slowly like do 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 just just pick the ones for the for the right sort of the right sort of moment. And and Chris, you and I when we met up, we played some two player games as well. Cause they just kind of seem like that's exactly the right sort of yeah. pitch. You know, twenty minutes in and out, minimal setup. And um, I guess a couple of them were pretty interesting. I mean, one we mentioned on the previous show, we talked about Aircom, which was Sobek two players, which I'll come to again. I'll come to again in a bit because I think it's also worth mentioning another game that we played at Aircom, which is two player. And we also have played since coming back from Aircom, which is Cryptid urban legends mm. i don't know if you've heard of this richard i have been i have been playing it you have been playing it wow okay i have i have been playing it uh, okay so what what did you think of cryptid um i've got my i've, I've obviously got my own place i'm going to put thoughts and stuff like that but i'm not i'm not 100 percent convinced with it 
I'm not entirely yeah. convinced that the theme sits in well with the actual game. I know the original Cryptid was all about kind of hidden movement and discovery and stuff like that. I can't yeah. say I'm 100% convinced that if you didn't reskin this with another theme, you wouldn't be losing anything too much of the game, to be perfectly honest. I think it's a very nice kind of almost like a geometric type puzzle where you're trying to obviously extend the size of the cities and the cryptid's got to like kind of place tokens down at each end to win and the other place has got to kind of reduce the amount of tokens on the board. So when you take it down to what it basically is, it doesn't need to live inside that theme for me personally. Well, I, I kind of actually got quite a bit from the theme. First of all, because like cryptid, both you and I, Chris, I know that we enjoy. Yeah. And whereas like the box art for Cryptid is incredible, but then when you open it up and play it, unfortunately it looks a bit like, you know, a GCSE maths yeah. exam. When you play it, you're having to do quite a lot of work mentally in order to imagine what this situation actually is on the table because the, the board does, doesn't actually give you that much in terms of like helping you imagine, you know, hunting down this Cryptid and competing mm-hmm. with people around the table to, to, to find it. So like that was my favorite thing about Urban Legends, which was the art by um, Quan Chai Moira is is through and through every single bit of the bit of the game. And I actually really like this idea in the game of the cryptid essentially trying to bamboozle the the scientists and lead them down different paths because how the how the game works is you have these little square city tiles and these three different colored tokens either side of the city red white and mm-hmm. black and on your turn you play a card either the scientist or the cryptid and the cards you play allow you to move those tokens and at the end of the round, depending on where those tokens are, the cryptid is able to put like basically like these big black presence tokens. And those are kind of areas that the cryptid has been picked up by these sensors, by the scientists. And the winning conditions are basically that the, the, the space, the city area is so huge, is allowed to grow to a certain extent. And the cryptid is allowed to orchestrate the situation where there's presence on the widest parts of those yeah. cities, then they're able to escape. They're essentially able to bamboozle the scientists and make their way through because they've the, the city area has just become too big for them. Conversely, the how the scientist wins is by basically trying to slim down the options, basically stop the search from getting that out of hand. If that makes sense. So I thought it worked. It worked really well in that in that kind of you know where mechanics are meeting very very abstract mechanics. Yeah. Of I'm meeting this kind of very sort of linear tug of war between these two adversaries, and that I liked. I liked the kind. I liked that you were able to play cards where you're splitting, like you're splitting the cubes, so the cubes are moving about, and then you've basically yeah. got to say, "Well, here's a guess: uh, orange cubes and white cubes." And then that person's like, "Oh, okay, could it be here, here, and here?" I just didn't see. I guess because it's a smaller game. I guess in all these smaller games, it's really, really difficult to not be able to divorce the theme from the game and still have the game sitting there and saying, well, it's not really much of a thing. I think it's interesting that you're saying about the original Cryptid was 
kind of in terms of the actual art direction on it, it was pretty poor compared to this one because this one is. I mean, Quan Chai is an amazing artist. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of all the stuff that he's done on previous stuff like Catacombs. He's moved in to do stuff for like the um, the latest Dinosaur World or something like that. He was he's he's the stuff he's done is amazing. So I just saw that it was just for me, for me. I thought it didn't matter. You could change the story into something else and you wouldn't have a, a huge difference on the game. Not to say I didn't like the actual gameplay. I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. My, um, my my son really liked it. My middle, he's a bit of a puzzly, thinky type guy. So he was able to go, da, da, da. And it's like, okay. <laughs> he always makes me feel absolutely stupid whenever we play games together because he must, he works like, he's the kind of guy who would look at fourth dimensional chess and just go, right, ding, 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 ding checkmate and it's like okay i'm gonna just go home so so I, i've not i mean i've not played kind of both cryptid urban legends or kind of the original so how does it feel different obviously there's, there's the player kind of change because it's a, it's a two-player game uh, urban legends how does that transition um kind of both help and kind of damage the the the, the core kind of game game experience so in the first cryptid, which uh, just off the top of my head was in episode seventy of the podcast, we talked Your about memory that. is astonishing, yeah. Chris. It, it was really the same is. time we talked about Into the Spider Verse. That's why I remember. Yeah, it. Um, yeah. I mean, that was literally years ago. <laughs> so, uh, so in cryptid, you're all rival hunters, I suppose, looking for this mysterious uh, cryptid. Whereas in cryptid urban legends it's as you say one versus one but one of you is the cryptid and one of you is the scientist trying to track them down so there's a, there's a there's a different agenda there really in terms of that dynamic between the players and how they interact with each other per se really i struggle with this one i must admit for two reasons one i still just couldn't wrap my head around the rules it felt too abstract for me because it's just discs and cubes and cubes different colors i couldn't understand mechanically i can understand why they're different colors but just saying oh they're different types of senses but they all do the same thing really they're just different colors i needed something a little bit more than that and also the fact that both the cryptid and the scientist can do the same actions i i didn't quite get that i wanted a little bit more asymmetry there i suppose yeah but that 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 gives the game the tension that it needs like knowing exactly what your opponent can do or might do gives it that tension you know when you're the cryptid and you're trying to make a plan for the escape and you're trying to see your way through this maze you know what the scientist could possibly do to disrupt that and change that so there's tension there in terms of you play your move as a cryptid and then you just got to kind of just sit back and wait to see what the scientist does knowing the moves that are available to them and then that then that produces that that tension and that drama between between the two players and i think like it's one of those for me it's kind of one of those games where it's all about the person you play it with and how many times you play it with that same person because once it's in your mind exactly how everything works all the three different moves and actions I think that's a really tense and very mechanically tight like game of cat and mouse actually here. And I think that, yes, there is a different theme that this could be. Yes, there is possibly more 
that you could do in terms of making the board more understandable in terms of, well, this is a red sensor and this does this, and this is a black sensor and this does this. But I think the simplicity within the objects and the abstractness of them, I think just allows that tension to become the main dominant like component of it. There's nothing that complicates that. There's nothing that, that overplays it. And it's the one thing I really dislike about asymmetry is when someone does something, it's just like, oh, well, I didn't know you could do that. Oh, well, oh, and, and, and I find that really infuriating as a player because it's kind of like I'm trying to make plans, but I don't know what you're going to do. So then I don't feel as satisfied because I've just spent ages thinking of a plan and you've just gone, well, I've got this card, which lets me negate all plans that you were going to, but you didn't know mm. I had that. So you can plan for it. And I think that in real tough two-player battles, like being as overt and as knowledgeable about what the other player can do really is, is kind of essential. I think it is worth saying as well, a marked difference between this and the previous Cryptid is the box size. This, for me, is mm. a really tight travel game. Yes. That you in those kinds of games we think of, without, with the possible exception of a small travel chess game is quite rare i think um mm -hmm. i can't think of any off the top of my head of a similar ilk which is as small and as tight and as compact and as portable as king this. domino jewel i would probably not the same not the same um type of game but in terms of like a really small tight two-player box king domino jewel is pretty pretty compact it's what it's what i call it as a train table game Train table game, yes. That's what well, no, I call it. can't have another genre Perfect. of game. So as you can tell, as I have been suffering from COVID and I've completely lost my semi-Bristolian accent, um, um, and uh, I'm now sounding... It's, it's finally <laughs> gone. Sounding a, bit, sounding a bit more <laughs> Scottish. <laughs> It's just one of the is that one of the symptoms? It is one of the, it's one of the symptoms. As, um, one of the new ones I've just added. My pa partner said to me, she says, Pete, she says, um, <laughs> you're sounding a bit Scottish there. And oh, I was like, better take a test. <laughs> I'm no, I'm no, I'm not lassie. <laughs> I better, better take a test then, eh? And so that's me. Um, so I'm kind of slowly getting over it over a period of time. But um, yeah, so ask me anything <laughs> you want to know about COVID. I mean, that's, that, that is a game show, isn't it? Is it Scottish? <laughs> is it Scottish? Scottish. <laughs> lawn sausage. Is it Scottish? It's partly getting... The lawn sausage, they're having to discontinue the lawn sausage in certain places. No. Because there's a worldwide shortage of nutmeg. Oh, right. <laughs> nutmeg is... You can laugh all you want. This is important. This is this is the this is an, it's going to have a strange effect on the Scottish kind of fried breakfast. But essentially, Lauren's Lauren's sausage for people who are not in the know is flat sausage. It's literally a big, huge thing of square sausage. It's literally like if Apple invented so, uh, did sausages, they would make this kind of square yes. sausage instead of the iPod Shuffle. It would be the i the i sausage, basically. But it is. It's a square bit of sausage. It's probably about a centimetre high. It's probably by about seven centimetres square. Where were you Where are you buying your lawn sausage? When I lived in Scotland, my lawn was like... <laughs> it was almost a wafer thin. Really? Sam, that's called ham. 
the <laughs> oh, okay. so been buying corned beef. It's like, oh no, here come here comes the English boy. Let's hide the good lawn sausage. Just, from just give him the hammy, won't now. But you can't get it. There's a worldwide shortage in Scotland of lawn sausage because you can't get it. Uh, you can't get the nutmeg. Sad times. We do live in dark times, don't we? This this wasn't something I wanted to talk about this evening, but it's literally just dropped on my lap now. Not literally. That's oh. Uh, so back in January, Sam, do you remember when mm. we were? I think we're out walking the dog near yours, and I posted a little parcel into a letterbox. Oh, yeah. I yeah. I, I posted off my DNA. <laughs> oh, to be sequenced yeah. and <laughs> replicated. To be sequenced. Um, I, I, there's, a, there's a number of these companies that do this and, and like many people around the start of the new year we're kind of curious about okay where have we come from this kind of stuff really and it's taken so long that literally now as we're recording this podcast in April the results have just landed wow <gasps> the results are in oh my god where is Chris from I want to see I, I need to this is amazing I mean this is not going to be interesting to anyone who doesn't know me really but anyway everyone uh, knows you Chris so <laughs> Luckily, it says Chris Darby 100%. That's good. That is good. So I'm all here. <laughs> I mean, that would be really weird if it wasn't. I mean, so, you know, when you, when you, put, your, when you, when you put your DNA into these things, you're expecting, oh, I want to kind of think of myself as a citizen of the world. Oh, no. Oh. I've always felt slightly French. Um, what, I've, what, I've, what I've come out with is I am 99.5% Northwestern European. <laughs> <laughs> oh great! Wow. I, you, I think you've got a dodgy sequencing here. <laughs> so I am seventy point five percent British and Irish. Yeah. Twenty one percent French and German. Wow. Three point five percent Scandinavian, and the very vague, broadly Northwestern European, four point four percent, but half a percent Italian. Of half a percent Italian. But this is the interesting thing. So. I have 19% more Neanderthal DNA than other customers. What? Specifically, specifically, and Sam, Dan, once again, I apologize, but this will support all your views of me. I have the one variant associated with having a worse sense of direction. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we can concur that your sense of direction is somewhat lacking. Yep. Oh. I thought this was going to be an eating thing. I too far, so did I. His ability to eat pizza is the 0.5% Italian. <laughs> yeah. The the ability to scoff a mammoth. That's true, yeah. And the, and the Neanderthal is just like eating on site. Whenever there's food, just eat, because just we never know when we're going to eat again. Always eat, I always eat as if it's my first meal. That's my rule. What, just liquidised? <laughs> so you're uh, 20% more Neanderthal than... Nine, 19, hasn't gone up, Dan. That sounds like some kind of advert you get for like some kind of cleaning product. It's now twenty percent more Neanderthal. More Neanderthal. Um, but it's interesting. Like, um, based on my genetics and other factors, I'm less likely to have a fear of public speaking. How did he even get that? I, I don't. I don't. I, mean, did, I don't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously your DNA is a is a kind of a script of some sort, and it can be amended a little bit as you get older and things but it says here for example i am there's a 71 percent chance i don't have a bull spot checks out yet 86 percent chance that i have detached earlobes i do indeed they're over there on the sofa <laughs> <laughs> i saw you putting them in before we started recording i didn't want to say anything yeah. 
the other the other two player game that myself and my wife and Chris have been playing uh, whilst we've been isolating and we spoke about it on the last podcast briefly before but it's Sobek two players now have you been playing this one Richard no okay I have not been playing Sobek two players where did you where did you get Sobek from so we first played it at Aircon mm-hmm. where um, Hachette were demoing it a nice guy called Richie um, showed Chris and I through the first few turns and then just as we were leaving the very nice people at Hachette sort of bundled a copy away with us uh, because we gave them some staying in stickers and um, told us to go and, and, and have some fun and play it. Wow. So, um, yeah, thank you very much to them for uh, giving us a copy. So Sobek 2 Players is kind of a weird title because it is actually based on an original game called Sobek. So that was a two to four player game. Yeah. And now this is a very specific, obviously, just two-player game and on the side of the box as you lift it up and i quite like um board games that do this it gives you like a little like headshot of one of the designers and then gives you like a little like blurb of you know some of the work they've done like like their little sort of um blind date style like hi i'm bruder cathala i'm this person from this and i've designed this 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 and this i love walks on the beach you know that kind of thing. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm playing Welcome to the Moon at the moment and on the side of the box it's got like lots of different moon facts and it's great. Did you know that Buzz Aldrin broke the button that sent them back to Earth? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible story. He had to jimmy it with his with his pencil to get it to work. Is it like one of these things you press a button and it gets stuck down? Yeah. And then you've got to try and like poke away at it to kind of get it back oh, on again. That was a, so bit, that must have been a bit that must have been a bit who's got the pencil to sort this out kind of thing um and so what's brilliant about sobek two players is is on the side of the box you get a lovely picture of uh, bruno cathala and you get another lo- lovely picture of sebastian pochon and um why they're significant is um that they've designed some of my favorite games ever really some of them jamaica seven wonders duel um, Jaipur, King Domino, all good um, games that I've that I've I, I got a lot of time for. Specifically, Jaipur and Seven Wonders Duel, which um, are two of my favourite two-player games. Jaipur, especially. Chris owns a copy, and it's probably the one that I take out of the Chris library more than any other game that he owns because I absolutely love it. It's it's the one that I've always come close to buying myself because. Me and my wife like it so much. So this is a two-player game basically designed by two of the people who've designed some of my favourite two-player games and board games. So it seems like it's got a high sort of expectation off the bat. And it's just, it's a set collection game, isn't it, Chris? Yes. So immediately my curiosity was piqued when I see a grid of face-up tiles. Yes. Because immediately that tells me, all right, every time I play this game, it's going to be always slightly different. Yeah. And also you've got this nice chunky ankh, the, the, the kind of the totem that is the kind of the marker for the game, really. And what I really, really also really like about this game that you always feel like both players, I think when you're playing your go, you always feel like 
you're getting something from each other. Yeah. Um, because, and as you'll probably, as we'll talk about in a little bit, it has a really lovely mechanic in this is where you position this ANC because it's all about collecting a set of certain tiles and you basically move this lovely three-dimensional ANC to that tile to grab it. Now, the direction of that ANC is determined by some little arrows or indicators on the tile you've picked it up from which tell you where it's going to go next. So I've got mm. to think about, well, okay, I can only move the ank in the direction, you know, diagonally or orthogonally that I can go with this. But I've also got to think about where I'm going to be putting this because, yes, I want that resource, but I've noticed that if I leave it there, it's going to point Sam in a nice place now for him to get the tile that he probably wants to add to his set. So it's there's just enough of a, a kind of having to think ahead, but you can't obviously think too far ahead. Because there's no. kind of a, there's a little bit of randomness there that stops you from that for me personally stops that analysis paralysis from kind of setting in too much and your brain starts to atrophy and it's not a fun time anymore, it, you know. So they they've got that lovely balance between strategy and luck, and it has this lovely thing that every now Sam correct me if I'm wrong every time you go mm. over a token, if you skip over a token to get the one you really want, say in the far corner you take certain negative points, don't you, that go on top of a, a tile in front of you. Is that correct? You basically take something which is called corruption. So if you really want a token, say you want some cows to complete your set of cows so you can sell them, and they're right at the other end of the board, and you've got to skip over a load of other resources to get them, you have to pick them all up. And in the game, it's called corruption. And at the end of the game, if you have more corruption than the other player that other player essentially gets to put their hand in this little wonderful orange Sobek bag and pull out a coin which will give them points, basically. And, you know, calling it corruption is one thing. This this whole, like, idea of it, like, you're a corrupt trader bribing people to get the goods that you really want. Um, but, but really, you kind of just strip it back to, like, well, if you really want it, you've got to pay a cost to, to get that thing that you really want and it actually turns out that it's that there's other stuff in the game that makes it a cost worth paying because as well as resources that you have there are also these tiles that are face down that are like character cards and there's these different like characters these different merchants that you can that you can pick up that you don't know who they are but when you pick them up on your turn instead of picking up a good or selling a group of resources you can choose to use this character and some of them thrive on these resources that you've got in your corruption thing so they'll be like where you can take cards out of your corruption and you can put them back into your hand so as chris was saying like it's just a set collection game where you're just trying to get lots of the same resources but at every single step of the way from picking up resources to playing characters to developing some kind of strategy like there is just enough of that um sort of like special source i guess you know salt in the in the grinder sand in the oyster whatever you want to call it where you can kind of just press your head against and have a good like strategize and think about like future moves but not too much that's going to completely burn yourself out and take you out out of the game and for me that does two things where it comes like first of all there's that like satisfaction of oh yeah it's played off 
uh, that thing that I was planning. Yep, it's all gone to plan. Yeah, meant to do that. Brilliant. Points, points, points. And the second thing that the reason why I really like that kind of thing is kind of it makes you want to play it again. It makes you want to go, right, I'm going to try this next turn. I'm going to try, you know, going after this resource. I'm going to try like losing characters a bit more and not waiting until like the last moment to sell my goods rather than selling them as soon as I get them. So, yeah, it's it's super, super fun. I've 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 been really enjoying it and it has gone into my two player. I know it's a question you're all going to ask <laughs> and it has gone into my two player collection. But it works so well as a two player game. And I see smatterings of Seven Wonders Jewel, particularly the Pantheon expansion, because as well as the stuff yep. on the board, there are, there are kind of a certain powers one can get or acquire that just mix it up just a little bit so you can't you don't fall into that pattern when you've got two of you playing the game for a long period of time where you just keep doing the same thing over and over again um there's smatterings of that i think with the coins you were talking about sam when you pull those out of the bag actually have different numbers on them so you don't know whether you're going to get a high yeah. a high amount or a low amount which makes you think of the treasure in jamaica for example so mm-hmm. you can kind of see these yeah. these these fingerprints from other games here that coalesce and it is a really tight two-player experience. Does it take long to play? No, twenty minutes. Yeah, because it's got it's got an internal timer built into it, which is the tiles that you that you have as soon as as soon as that stack of tiles is um, is used up, mm. then the game just ends immediately, and you restock the board basically when there there are no resources along the axis where the ank is pointing right so you can essentially create situations where you can think well there's there's not that resources that I want on the board here so I'm going to put my I'm going to put my opponent down here which means they have to restock the board which means on a future turn I'm going to get more choices later on so again it's just one of those things where it's like a really nice decision to have as a player. It's not too overly complicated. It's not too overly like meticulous or or planned out far ahead. But it's such a nice decision to be like, yeah, I can put it over here, which means that they will have to restock the board, which means I'll have better choice on subsequent turns, which makes it a really satisfying play. And then basically I think the board can probably on average, gets refilled probably about two, three times before it's then yeah, that sounds the end right. of the game. Yeah. And then scoring is super simple. It's the amount of resources that you have multiplied by the amount of scarabs that are present on the resources. Yeah. It's a very, very streamlined, well-thought-out, planned planned out two-player game. I'm a, re- I'm a big fan of the art on this. Um, yes, it's, yes. It, it looks lovely. I, li- I like something bright and colourful. I'm, I'm kind of. It's reminding me, um, in terms of tile layout and things like that. There was a game I played um, a while ago called Juicy Fruits. Um, oh, Juicy Fruits. Yeah, which, okay. is, which was uh, it's kind of like uh, Juicy Fruits was kind of like a, a kind of a. It was a transformer because it was a Euro in disguise, um, but. <laughs> It was, it was incredible. Uh, I've just killed Sam. Um, it was incredible. Yeah, it was a, it was a kind of lovely, bright kind of let's try and score you, get yourself up the points tracker as much as you possibly could kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was so bright and colourful, absolutely lovely on the table, and it was all around kind of resource control and kind of essentially maximising your kind of your point scoring. But the Soul Beck looks absolutely in 
endearing as and there's there's a little bit of the it does remind me of um King Domino in terms of its um the illustrations the kind of the DNA kind of looks there I don't even know if it's maybe the kind of the same artists have crossed cross paths there there's a little bit of Santorini as well for me as well yeah I like I do like I like something bright and colorful I'm kind of too you know I want something that really kind of shines and pops mm. on the table and this looks like it's certainly this looks like it certainly might be worthwhile kind of taking a good uh, a Taking a definitely a good look at, I would say. So I watched two films over the weekend, which were sequels to films that haven't been out in a long, long, long time. That's what I'm talking about here. And they were on, they were cheap on Amazon to rent. They were like about four pound ninety nine per to rent. And I'm still waiting for June to come down in price. It's like fifteen quid still to rent June. Oh, oh, I'll just buy it. That just seems incredibly silly. So. I watched, and I'm, I'm not going to go into too much deets about this because it's nostalgic. And part of the joy for me in watching these films was I knew nothing about them when I went into them. Well, I didn't go into them. They came to me hmm. being at home. Um, <laughs> I watched The Matrix Resurrections oh. and I watched Ghostbusters Afterlife. Okay. And one of the films made me cry and I wasn't expecting it to. And I won't tell you which one. So it's just like a... Is this like a Starship Troopers, would we like to learn more situation? And do we get to pick one? You should really have a red pill and a blue hip pill in each hand. And one of them says, you know, <laughs> take the red pill and we go to the Matrix. Take the blue pill and we go to the Ghostbusters. Right. Let, let, let's do it that way then. So which one are you more interested in? Huge amounts of peaked interest for both of them. But I've heard conflicting things about both films as well. But in, in all honesty, I would like to hear more about Ghostbusters Afterlife than I would like to hear about The Matrix. The first 10 minutes of The Matrix Resurrections is available on YouTube um, if you want to watch it. Which did pique my interest because it's almost exactly the same first 10 minutes of The Matrix, which is shot for shot. Yeah. Um, oh. Which is... Which is an incredibly ballsy play, basically, from Lana Wachowski. And I really love the story because I enjoyed The Matrix Resurrections in part because of the story about where it came from. Because I didn't realize mm -hmm. this, although it kind of makes sense. Every year since 2003, when The Matrix Revolutions dropped, Warner Brothers kept going to Wachowskis and saying, can you make another one, please? And they always say, no. And they've wow. been doing no since 2003 even though they would make gangbusters they've like no and we're not going to go back to it and for them the matrix online um you remember that don't you the matrix oh, online yeah. yeah yeah that was supposed mm -hmm. to be the sequel because i remember the enter the matrix video game which is amazing because yeah. they actually filmed separate scenes just for the game yeah which was unheard mm -hmm. of at that point yeah and i love that game um so for them that was the sequel strange a bit like ghostbusters where that the video game for many became the only sequel that we'd ever get was the video game Ghostbusters. Uh -huh. And I think that was 1991. Well, you went the animated top. series as well, didn't you? Oh yeah. I, I had everything. As and of course you had the an series, animatrix, so. but that, that was more kind of between matrix and reloaded that kind of, that, that it was, yeah, that came out in 2002 that came out in. Yeah. But, Ooh. but, 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 but interesting about this is that in 2019, uh, sadly, the Wachowskis lost both their parents like a few months apart. And 
Lana also lost a very close friend. And after like one sleepless night, they woke up and they just said, I have the idea for the resurrections. If I can't, and they literally were saying like, look, if I can't, I can't bring my parents back. back. Do you know who I can bring back? Hmm. And I think that's really, really interesting when you watch that film, when you watch that film through that prism, I think that's a really, really interesting reading of it. Cause it, cause then immediately it didn't, it doesn't feel like it's a cash in. It doesn't feel no. like they are like we've seen in some instances where they are. And, and also it didn't overly feel like fan service, which is what I think is to put what you were saying, Richard is what irked some people. What they wanted was yeah, more of the same. Um, but actually what they got was something that was genuinely trying to be different um, while still in that world of the matrix. Ghostbusters Afterlife is interesting because the Empire Review put it really, really well, actually. They said, um, it's its own thing, but it still feels like a Ghostbusters film. And I, Reitman said a very, very good job at that. I should say Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman, said a very, yeah. very good job at that. It still feels like a Ghostbusters film. And it was just been a wonderful two days, really, just kind of being all nostalgic. I don't really, I mean, unless people want me to talk about broadly kind of plot synopsis, like broad premises and things, I don't really want to trample on people's childhoods. No. Um, But I thought it was really interesting that in the throes of being ill, suddenly, uh, and and also it's in the zeitgeist at this moment, and we've spoken about this at length before, so I don't want to kind of overlay the point here, that stuff that we that we would watch when we were kids, now when we've got to that age, when we've got a disposal income, we're now going out and revisiting those. That seems to be that kind of that kind of cycle per se, really. And what I found more interesting with Resurrections than say Afterlife was that the way in which they have kind of actually both of them to an extent, sorry, have sought to challenge that perception of it just being you know uh, a money grab hmm. so I, I would recommend both of them i don't know if i can speak to you liking them i don't i, I genuinely <laughs> don't but i i enjoyed both of them i very very much did and yeah the ballsiness of the matrix i really, really enjoyed yeah i mean i've not i've obviously not seen them the only things i've seen with the, with the trailers and i think what struck me in both cases was the fact that both of them seemed to be doing something very different. I remember like seeing the trailer for The Matrix and I think, Sam, you said you hadn't wanted to see it or something like that. And I, I think the only thing I said was like, it, it looks nothing like the other ones. Like the, especially kind of Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions, the colour palette was so defined. Those greens and those greys and kind of the greens in the Matrix and the blues, it was kind of oversaturated at times. Whereas the trailer for the kind of Resurrections was the palette was completely different. And then like watching the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife, like until the the vehicle shows up in the trailer, and I'm basing all my comments on the trailers because I haven't seen the film, until like the kind of iconic vehicle shows up in the trailer, it doesn't feel like a Ghostbusters film. It can, feels completely new and completely different. And now obviously I know they are both of them leaning as you kind of talk about in the start, they are both leaning on your love of the previous films. But just from that standpoint, just right from the beginning, they're, they're jumping off points and what they're selling you through those those trailers was the fact that this is maybe Ghostbusters and Matrix, 
but we're doing something different with it. And I think for me, especially with Ghostbusters, because it felt like, okay, this is like completely different to anything seen before. Like the, the Ghostbusters that came out a few years ago, the kind of the all-female cast, um, I quite liked it. I I, I know it got a like bit that. of a hammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot to like in that film, definitely. I, I quite enjoyed it. I think I, I liked all of the, the kind of the actors they brought in. I found them all really funny and they all kind of um, captured the, the essence of what Ghostbusters was. It's very different, very different feel, but the essence was there. Um, but it felt like the old Ghostbusters film. Whereas Ghostbusters Afterlife, the feeling and the tone that it was trying to put forward felt very, very different. And obviously you, you're factoring in Stranger Things type kind of zeitgeistiness because obviously you've got yeah. certain actors and the idea of like the younger generation kind of not so much kids, but kind of that kind of Stranger Stranger Things age range, um, adding a different kind of component to it, which is something new, which is always kind of good to look at rather than just a rehash of what's been done before. But I think what's really interesting is that one thing it Afterlife does get right that I don't think the 2016, I think it was the film came out, didn't, was the humour of Ghostbusters. And not to say that the Paul Feig film didn't have humour, it was just a different type of humour, whereas the humour of the original Ghostbusters is quite glib. If you're thinking about Peter Venkman, for example, yeah, yeah. and it's very deadpan, that's yeah, in spades. Dry. It's actually, it, it felt almost like I was watching the first Spider-Man film, Homecoming that kind of dry humour. It felt, mm. This feels like Ghostbusters. And as a child, I didn't realise how funny Ghostbusters was. It was only when I watched it some years later as a teenager, early adult, that actually, um, this is actually a really funny film. And that's why my dad likes it. As a kid, I'm terrified by that opening library scene, um, the dogs. Yeah. It's a, it's a oh, really yeah. scary yeah. film. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And, uh, but actually, as you're old, you think, actually, this is really funny. It's just really darkly comic. And Afterlife gets that right. And in the same way with the Matrix Resurrections, they've they've done it. They've pulled an absolute blinder here. They've not tried to say we're not going to top Revolutions, where you've got two super gods battling each other, destroying uh, a ruined cityscape. We're not going to do that. Resurrections is much more of a character piece, and some people will not like that. For me, I love that. I I wanted to know what happened in the intervening years in the world of the Matrix, because that's what I've become invested in. As when I was younger, it was all yeah. about the Kung Fu. Mm. Um, then it became about the philosophy. And, you know, the amount of scholarly articles and publications devoted to the Matrix is incredible. And if you're interested in that world and you want to know what happened after revolutions, this will, this will answer that for you. And that's what I loved. That's what I was invested in. And in Afterlife, taking it out of New York... It makes you realise, actually, what's Ghostbusters like if it's abstracted from this bustling cityscape in a town where it's been 30 years? You know, these, these, these people in New York, this far-off distant city, was that just an urban legend? Did that actually happen or not? I can't really remember that. I don't really know. What's a Ghostbuster? Seeing, that, seeing <laughs> Ghostbusters abstracted and put in this environment is really fascinating because you start to realise, actually, these are the things I like about This is what Ghostbusters is. Yeah. And that is a really interesting thing to watch. So I I was genuinely enjoyed both of them, really. Uh, and, and because, and I, I still can't quite put my finger on what they did. It was still, it was a Matrix film. Um, more so to some degree than the Reloaded and Revolutions to some degree. I don't know. I need to think of that through. And Aftermath is very much a Ghostbusters film. Yeah. 
And it did not spoil my enjoyment or love of those franchises in any way, shape or form. I'm interested in seeing both of them. Um, I always thought the 2016 Ghostbusters, I think, knowing the stuff and the other films that Melissa McCarthy done, um, she's a very, very funny, but very, very adult, rude type of comedian type thing. The stuff that she does is always on the line. And I always think that Answer the Cogs, I think that was the subtitle to the film, I think they pulled back a whole pile of stuff. There's a whole pile of stuff on the cutting room floor where they just let like Ken and Melissa McCartney just go off on one. Because um, they, they kind of, you know, it was a Kristen uh, Wegg and they're all known for kind of cutting to the bone with the stuff. Bridesmaids is one of my favourite films. It's my favourite Star Wars film. Um, you know, I've watched. I've actually figured out. I watched. I've watched Bridesmaids more than I've watched any of the Star Wars films. I mean, it's just one of my favourites. But you know, but the type of humour in that, with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy, and you know, I think there was a lot of that that was maybe cut out of that Ghostbusters film uh, to keep studio people happy in order to allow them to kind of hit the kids' market and sell the toys. And I think there's a there is a release the Paul Feige cut basically. I think that, that as for the new one I'm interested in seeing it I wasn't interested enough to go to the cinema and see it I think at the time but I think that was because it was Covid related I'll probably pick it up at some point and look at it I'm interested in seeing it. if you're saying that Resurrections is character driven then that puts it back in my wheelhouse to definitely hunt it down and give it a look because one of the things that was both about kind of <clears throat> the final two was they kind of went we had a huge set piece at the end of The Matrix and then they had a bigger set piece in the second one. And then the final one was just off the chart. And I just went, mm, I don't think that was how they maybe intended it to finish off. So if you're saying it's now character driven, I'm definitely interested in seeing how it kind of how it kind of turns out. I mean, I mean, when I was a kid, I really did like that idea of like, the, you know, the Hansel and Gretel house. Oh, a house you could eat. Yeah, a house you could eat, but obviously being very select in terms of when you... Where and where you take bites, no load bearing supports or anything like that. But you think about it, actually, that must be the reality. Of that would be absolutely disgusting. The, the whole point is like you would actually need to tell people not to eat certain parts of the house because there'd be other the people that they wouldn't actually commit to taking a bite. Because yeah. if you have a house that's made out of candy or made out of sugar and made out of things that are edible, yeah, I think you're going to get very, there's going to be a very low commitment threshold here. You're not going to get many biters, but I think you're going to get a couple of finger ins and definitely a couple of lickers. I think you're going to get somebody that's going to go past and just go, yeah. the postman. And the problem with that, as soon as you go down that road, as soon as the salivary amylase hits that chocolate wall, there's going to be some dissolving going on. There's going to be some biology. You're going to end up with a bit of a sticky mess, aren't you? The other issue that you come into when you have a house that's entirely made out of food is when, you know, the, the economy booms and you figure, right, I need to get out of this house in the forest. I want to move, get a bigger place, have a family. When it comes to selling the house made out of food, yeah. people who come round to possibly purchase the house made out of food, they're going to want to try a little bit. They're going to want to know. Try before you buy. Well, no, because if you've got a, if you've got a house made of food, you're not eating it. And if anything, if I'm invited round to someone's house and they have a house made of food, 
I'm not going to eat it unless I've been expressly invited to do so. Well, that, I don't think you're in the market then. You're not. In, you're not the. You're not the buying. You're not the boy buying audience that they're looking for. I'm afraid. If you live in a house made yeah. of food, you're going to want it to exactly. taste good. Yeah. You can, that's the whole reason you're, you're luring children in. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's just be careful where this conversation goes. That took, a, that took a, <laughs> that made a bit dark. <laughs> well, you said you wanted a Hansel and Gretel house, Chris. Well, yeah, I'm in the house. I, I mean, obviously, they, they've sold it to me, you know, and I've got, or, or Kevin McLeod has just found this mad couple who want to live in this modern house made of food. Yeah, exactly. But you're going to want it to taste yeah. nice. And the, and what I'm saying is, the, the minute you want to sell it, every time someone comes to visit, devalues your property because they're going to want to have a little bite. If, if we took kind of gingerbread and like biscuit out of the equation, what would be the yeah. best food to build a house from? This is what I was going to ask, Dan. Weetabricks. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's got to be the shortest catchphrase in the world. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it is Weetabix. Any, oh, anyone no. who has left Weetabix on the side of like, a bowl. Celi- the celiac in the corner says, you're off, you're off your rocker, mate, because there's no way I'm living in a house. Which is potentially, I'm going to end up being celiac by osmosis. By I'm just going to, oh, I think I'm just going to sit down in my comfy chair. Next thing I know, I've got like literally absorbed enough gluten so it just turns everything just turns nasty. That's what you're going to have to watch when you're selling the house. It's not just a case of, yeah. you know, I notice you've got a bit of damp there. You've got to also say, I see that you're yeah. lactose intolerant. That means that you can't go into the second bedroom. Yeah, yeah that and the rain, of course. <laughs> oh yeah, the weather. That's like the first first bit of moisture. That that house is coming down. I reckon. I, I see that's. I see why the whole thing was a fairy tale now. <laughs> that was the only chink in its otherwise impenetrable armour. <laughs> There we go. That was definitely a podcast and it definitely wasn't cake, despite how sweet and spongy um, most of us are. Um, I was on there, Sam Turner, there was Chris Darby, there was Daniel Frost and of course our special guest, Richard Simpson, the wonderful, wonderful Richard. Um, If you'd like to see, hear, read more of Richard's musings and wonderful witticisms then just search for We're Not Wizards on Twitter. Um, he's got a blog as well at we're not wizards.blogspot.com and also he's got an ace YouTube channel. Just search for We're Not Wizards and Richard will appear. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, also just a quick thank you as well to Osprey Games for sending us uh, cryptid urban legends and also for Hachette for letting us walk away from Aircon with a copy of Sobek 2 players and just another quick note about the previous podcast I incorrectly said that the um, wonderful Ganny Mead was published by Funny Fox it's not it's published by sorry we are French that's been bugging me for two weeks anyway um what next so let's just do where you can keep in touch with us until the next podcast is out in a couple of weeks time you can just search for staying in pod on twitter instagram facebook youtube we're all there and you can also just look at the website stayinginpodcast.com if there's something that you missed you can go to board game geek and you can go to steam where we've got curated pages full of all the video games and the board games that we've ever spoken about so if you're looking for something to do to fill the time then we've got you covered that's why we're here and it's always such a delight an absolute pleasure to have you along and to join us 
for this wild ride. <laughs> um, um, obviously, as you can hear, I'm still bunged up and I'm still isolating at home due to COVID. Um, hopefully, on the mend, it's been quite a long time now. The cough is slightly going, but um, I think we're all getting there and you know, working our way back to full health. But I do hope that you are well and healthy and taking care of yourself and doing what you need to do to feel comfortable and for others to feel comfortable around you. So do take care, look after yourself, look after your friends and your family and those that you love. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.